Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for the Advent season. Like one of my... One of my favorite biblical scholars said, what other season does the church really have besides Advent? We really are in a posture of simply waiting for Jesus in this lifetime, suspended between the two comings of Jesus. We really believe with all of our hearts and soul and trust that Jesus came in the flesh 2,000 years ago for us. And we really believe that Jesus is coming back. And so, Lord, I pray that you would keep our eyes glued and fixed on the horizon for the return of Jesus. And that even though I love all the things of Christmas, I love the bells and whistles, I love the presents, I love the caroling, I love the movies, I love the ugly sweaters, clearly. I love all that stuff. I, like the, I love the Clark Griswold spirit. All that stuff is great. But, Lord, I pray that you would give us sight to see through all those things to the true reality of Christmas, which is the person of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. So Lord, wake us up this morning. We're in a stupor. Wake us up, Lord. We're dull. Wake us up. We're blind. Wake us up. And take our eyes this morning and fix them on the precious Jesus Christ that we all love. So it's in Jesus' name that the whole church prayed. Amen. Um, it's really good to see you guys this morning. I just, I just love being a part of this church and I love you guys so much. This Advent season, it's just, it's been a joy so far for these last couple of weeks. Um, you know, over those last couple of weeks because of the Advent challenges, that's given me just a little bit of a glimpse into so many of the traditions that our young families and older families are building so that this season gets centered around Jesus. And I've just been super proud of the work that God has done in so many of your families and so many of your lives. And it's just been sweet to see us celebrate Advent together as, as a church. It really, it really has been. You guys have done an awesome job keeping up with the challenges, awesome job building these traditions that point your family to Jesus. It's just been fun for me as a pastor to see you guys do so well during this Advent season. So what I felt compelled to do before I even preach is as we kind of enter into this Christmas season in front of us, I know we're kind of all over the place, you know, for some of us, these next couple days, this next week will kind of be a dark night of the soul and we're going places that we don't want to go when we're spending time with people that we don't want to spend time with or maybe we're looking forward to an argument that we know is going to happen at the table. I know there are people in this room who go through that stuff and yet I know there's also people who are going to be sipping on eggnog and just happy as a lark this week. So we are all over the map. Before I touch the text, let me just preach a few Christmas blessings over you guys this morning. Specifically, I've got husbands and fathers on my mind. So husbands and fathers, be the lead rejoicers in your family this Christmas season. Don't let the unbelieving world out rejoice you in your family. You're not too cool to be jolly this Christmas year, man. Wear the ugly sweaters, sing the carols, bake the Christmas cookies, have fun, but we can be the city's most joyful men. Amen? Wives and mothers, be filled with peace this Christmas season. 
resist the temptation to be filled with unnecessary stress and anxiety. Jesus doesn't care if you don't get all the right presents. Jesus doesn't care if you burn the Christmas meal. Jesus doesn't care if you don't get all the tinsel out of the carpet. Be filled with peace and just rejoice over your families. Rejoice over your husbands. Rejoice over your children. Rejoice over your friends. We can be the city's most joyful women. Amen, ladies? And lastly, singles, give yourselves to serving your families and friends well this Christmas season. You have no idea how much your love, support, and encouragement can bless those around you during this stressful time. A note of encouragement can do so much. Your presence in the family can do so much. A hand on the shoulder and a prayer can do so much. Laugh at your dad's jokes. It will bless him, I swear. You've been filled with the fullness of God to just give abundantly this season, so do it. So this season, I really believe this, we can be the city's most jolly people, amen? All right, sweet, well, let's rock and roll. Um, If you've got a Bible, go ahead and get that open to Luke chapter 23. We'll have that text on the screen for you in a second. Um, First, let me just confess that I've been struggling with something lately. Um, Been struggling with something lately. This is not a proud moment of mine, but it's gonna come out. Um, I made a middle schooler cry a couple of weeks ago and it just broke my heart and I just can't get it out of my head. It, like I woke up this morning and I was thinking about that moment already. I had to process this moment with Chloe, I think like the other week. I made a middle schooler cry and it just felt like somebody punched me in the spleen. You know, I was like, oh, I can't believe I did that. But you guys know that I coach uh, high school wrestling and middle school wrestling. And sometimes it's hard to shift back and forth because high schoolers and middle schoolers need different things, right? Like in general, Kids, athletes need one of two things. They either need air in the tires or gas in the tank. Usually middle schoolers need air in the tires, you know, just some encouragement. Hey, bud, you're doing good. Everybody makes mistakes. Keep it up. But usually high schoolers, they need gas in the tank, right? So they need like, hey, wake up. Let's go. Get your heart in this thing. But sometimes since I coach both, it's kind of tough to switch back and forth. And so there I was, uh, two weeks ago, coaching a seventh grader. And what makes this the worst for me was that this little seventh grader like really looks up to me and really respects me and admires me. And he's told me that. And so I'm in his corner. He's on the wrestling mat. He's wrestling. He goes out there and he gets taken down. And right when he gets taken down, he does the one thing that no wrestler should ever do. He puts his head on the mat, just like this. You know anything about wrestling, you know that that is almost certain death. Never put your head on the mat, right? We coach kids to not put your head on the mat. We warn them of the consequences, the consequences of what happens when you put your head on the mat. When you put your head on the mat, you're going to get put in a half Nelson, you're going to get turned, and you're going to get pinned. We do drills, to show them this is what happens when you put your head on the mat. This is what you look like when you put your head on the mat. And here's why you shouldn't put your head on the mat. But this seventh grader is a seventh grader. And he goes out there, he gets taken down, and he puts his head on the mat. And the kid throws it a half Nelson, turns him to his back, and our kid's on his back. And I'm like, this is why we told you this. Luckily, the kid didn't get pinned, and the period ends. And so I stand up in the coach's corner, and what I should have said was, hey, buddy, everybody makes mistakes. Get your heart back in it. We got this thing. That's what I should have said. That's not what came out of my mouth. I stood up, and I said, 
Hey, why is your head on the mat? Just like that. Like, I like, I stopped. I was, I don't know, I'm gonna stop. Why is your head on the mat? It felt just to me. We told him about the consequences. I've given my life to getting you to not put your head on the mat. Put his head on the mat. Hey, why is your head on the mat? And this little seventh grader, head on a swivel, just turns and looks at me like a, like a puppy that's been kicked. I know, I'm glad you're on his team. He's got these little half moon eyes, you know? And he just immediately starts crying in the middle of the mat. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I do? Like my posture immediately changed. Like, why is your head on the mat? Oh, oh. So I just like, I have my resignation like written up in my head. I'm like, why did I do that? I felt like a piece of garbage. He takes his headgear off and he starts to storm off the mat. And I'm like, oh no, he's going to quit in the middle of a match. So I run over and I catch him before he leaves the mat. And I, I put my arm around him before I can even say anything. He goes, he goes, bro, I'm done. I'm <laughs> I'm done. I'm not putting my head down. I'm not finishing this match. I can't believe you yelled at me like that. And I was like, oh my gosh. I was like, hey buddy, I made a mistake and I shouldn't have yelled at you like that. And I was being a jerk. I'm so sorry. But I want you to put your headgear back on. I want you to get back there. I want you to wrestle the rest of this match. I don't care if you win or lose. I don't even care if you put your head on the mat again. (laughs) Get your memory foam pillow. Put your head on the mat. I just don't even care. I just want you to not quit. And he did. He went back there. He got back into the match. He lost big time. Um, but I was, just, I was just super proud of him for getting back there. Um, but on the other hand, later on that night, one of his friends was wrestling. And wouldn't you know it, he was Matt's side cheering on his friend. And when his friend started to lose the wrestling match, do you want to know what this little booger said? <laughs> he looks at his friend and he says, hey, get your head off the mat. And I was like, oh, dang, that's what's up, huh? Okay, okay. And immediately I'm like, hold on a second. When you put your head on the mat, you want a warm blanket, a green tea, And you want to be told that everybody makes mistakes. That's cool. But when your friend puts his head on the mat, all of a sudden you're Judge Judy delivering justice out there, huh? When you make a mistake, you want grace for yourself. And when others make the same mistake, you want judgment executed against them. What is that? That's human nature. You might not be in seventh grade. You might not be a wrestler. But maybe you have more in common with this kid than you thought. Maybe this is you. Maybe what you want is grace for yourself. And you want justice executed against others. This is important because this is, this is precisely our theme this morning as we open up the Bible. Justice and grace. These are the diverse excellencies of Jesus that we're studying this morning. We're saying, in essence, that Jesus is perfect in justice and he's extravagant in grace. And so before we dive in, let me just get our terms right this morning. Let me give us two quick definitions. Um, I should have put these on slides, but I didn't. Let's, let's define justice really quickly. Justice is 
restoring what has been wronged by putting it right, either by retribution or restoration. In essence, it's dispensing what is deserved. Grace, on the other hand, is forgiving a wrong and no longer holding a penalty over the wrongdoer. In contrast to justice, which is dispensing what is deserved, grace is withholding what is deserved and giving what is not deserved. Justice is beautiful. Grace is beautiful. But they don't seem to fit together, do they? They seem incompatible with one another. One is making sure that a wrong is put to right. The other is forgiving a wrong. One is giving somebody exactly what they deserve. The other is withholding what somebody deserves and giving them something better than they deserve. And these two don't seem to fit together because they can't seem to fit together. And that's the bane of human existence because it makes you wonder in situations, should I, should I give this person justice or should I give them grace? And at a theological level, it makes you wonder, which one is Jesus into? Which one does Jesus value more? Is Jesus the God of justice who every time I sin is up in heaven stomping his feet saying, why is your head on the mat? I told you what would happen if you sinned and now you're getting pinned and you deserve it. Or is Jesus the God of grace who is eager to drape his arm around you and to remind you that it's not about winning or losing, but he loves you regardless. Grace, justice. Grace, justice. Which one is Jesus into? Because they don't seem to fit together. Or do they? So let's stand for the reading of God's word and maybe you'll see these themes come through. Why is your head on the mat? I just can't believe I said that to that poor little kid. Luke 23, verse 39. Jesus is being crucified in the middle of two criminals. And one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Which one is Jesus into, justice or grace? You can have a seat. Justice or grace. Those words aren't technically in the text this morning. You don't see the words grace and justice. You see just. They're not in the text this morning, but the reality of grace and justice is just all up in our text this morning. So let me just walk you through a couple of the verses. At verses 40 through 42, this is what Luke says when he's describing the crucifixion of Jesus. Quick criminals who was hanged railed at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. He's mocking Jesus. But the other criminal rebuked that criminal saying, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly. 
We're just receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. So there's Jesus on the cross, hanging between two criminals, which is, of course, irony if you know the Bible, because you know that at the throne of God, Jesus is surrounded by two cherubim, strong seraphim angels who are praising him. So to be surrounded by two criminals is just crazy. And yet that's what's happening. One criminal is mocking him. Oh, you're the Christ. Then why don't you get off that cross? Um, But the other criminal notices something. The other criminal, he's looking at Jesus and he knows that Jesus is innocent. And he has this strong sense of justice that wells up within the criminal. He says some pretty astounding things. Um, He knows, for instance, that his punishment on the cross is right. We don't know exactly what these criminals did. The Bible doesn't tell us. I've read the scholarship on it. It seems like the best guess is probably that these men also claimed to be the Messiah. And so they were being executed as political rebels alongside of Jesus. That's my best guess. Of course, maybe they just stole something or maybe they were murderers or something. We don't really know. Um, You're not supposed to really know because you're supposed to see yourself in their position. And so we don't really know. Um, but one of, one of the wrongdoers senses that where he's presently at is the just reward for the life that he's lived. He's a wrongdoer and he deserves this. He calls his own crucifixion in verse 40, his words, not mine, quote, the due reward of his deeds. This is just. It's also pretty amazing that this criminal sees the justice of the situation. Because usually what we do is the opposite, right? What we want is we want grace for ourselves and we want justice for others. When we sin, we tend to see ourselves as good people who just happen to do a bad thing. Nobody's perfect. But when other people sin, we tend to see them as bad people because they did a bad thing. Can you believe she said that and did that? You actually see this um, not just in your own life, but you see this in like King David's life in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's this crazy story where King David, who's got all these wives, I know that's problematic, that's for a different sermon, but David has this whole flock of wives in his life, and he takes another man's wife named Bathsheba. He sees her, he finds her attractive, and he basically connives his way into landing Bathsheba, steals her from another man. And so God, to rebuke David, sends David a prophet. And the prophet doesn't just tell David to stop or tell David that he did something wrong. What the prophet does is the prophet does what prophets do, which is he tells this little prophetic story. He says, hey, king, um, tell me what should be done. Once upon a time, there was a kingdom with a rich man who had a whole flock of lambs and a poor man who only had one lamb. Some of you know where this is going. Congratulations, David doesn't. (laughs) Smart dudes sometimes, street smarts are not there. David's like, all right, yeah, let's see if we can crack this coat. And the prophet goes on to say, and one day while the rich man was traveling, you know the man, you know the man, he's got all the sheep in the world. Um, this man is traveling and he ends up stealing the poor man's one lamb and makes himself a meal. And David hears this story. He's incensed by rage because he's a man of great justice. And so he takes his little gavel and in the text, he literally responds to the parable by saying, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And the prophet says, you're the man. And David's like, oh my gosh, what? You're the man. This is a parable. David, you had all the lambs in the world. 
and you stole the one lamb that belonged to Uriah. You're the man. And this is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story in the Old Testament because it teaches us about our fundamental human nature, which is you desire grace for yourself and justice to be executed against other. When David was committing the injustice and stealing Bathsheba, he was all like, well, you know, boys will be boys. You know what I'm saying? Nobody's perfect besides God. But in the parable, when another man steals a sheep, all of a sudden he's Judge Judy, and the man who has done this deserves to die. You ever see this in yourself? A couple weeks ago, I pulled up to a red light. And I know I shouldn't have done this, and I know you guys are going to scold me. And I know those of you who have children are going to tell your kids to not be like Pastor Cole, which is always timely advice. (laughs) I, I pull up to the red light, and I think to myself, this would be a good time to knock out one or two text messages. Pull my phone out, and I start to send a text message. The next thing I know, somebody behind me is honking like it's the end of the world, right? It's been like two seconds since it's turned green. And so what I do in the car is I'm just chill as a cucumber, right? And so this guy's honking at me behind, and I audibly throw my hands up and say, chill out, bro. Everybody does it. Everybody texts at a red light. And then we're on with the day. On the other hand, earlier this week, I pull up to a red light behind somebody else. The light turns green and you would never believe what this person had the audacity to do. They're sitting there while they should be driving on their phone sending a text message. And I'm Mr. Chill as a Cucumber, you know. Hey, it happens to everybody. Uh, Not the case when I'm behind him. What I do is I take my hand I honk on the horn like the world is ending. I throw my hands up and audibly say in my car, come on, bro. What is that? When I'm the one texting and driving, everybody does it. You know what I'm saying? But when somebody else is texting and driving, injustice, death penalty for that. The man who is texted while driving deserves to die, right? All of a sudden, I'm King David banging my gavel because fundamentally, I'm telling you that what you want for yourself is grace and forgiveness and mercy and what you want executed against others is justice. And this is a silly example, you know? It's a silly example of me at at the red light, Um, but you're not escaping either because you see this in your own life, don't you? When a leader in your Christian tradition sins, you say, no man is perfect, but when a leader in a different tradition, tradition sins, you say, I told you they were never a Christian. Or when your ideological party destroys property, well, it's just because of things that happened. But when their party, their ideological party destroys property, how could they? The man who has done this deserves to die. When you fall for a lustful thought, hey, Nobody's perfect but Jesus. Boys will be boys. But when your spouse confesses a lustful thought, all of the sudden it's it's because you don't value our relationship and you don't value our covenant and you don't love me and how could I trust you? And what this reveals is that we want grace for ourselves and we want justice executed on others. Grace for me, justice on you. Mercy for me, justice on you. Grace for me, the law on you. And the beautiful thing about Jesus, I need you guys with me, is that Jesus is literally the opposite of you in the gospel. He's the opposite. He takes justice upon himself and then he lavishes out grace upon you. That's the gospel. 
Watch this. Watch how this happens in our text. Watch this closely. The criminal who's there, because he deserves to be there, he acknowledges the justice of the situation. And despite the sin that landed him there on the cross, what this man does is he lifts his eyes to the man in the middle. He lifts his eyes to the man who he says has done nothing wrong. He lifts his eyes to Jesus of Nazareth and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And listen carefully, because Jesus turns to the criminal and says, sorry, but the man who has done this deserves to die. Right? God's been so clear about the consequences of sin. He's been so clear This is what happens when you sin. This is why you don't lie. This is why you don't cheat. This is why you don't murder. This is why you don't steal. And yet this criminal has been doing exactly that. God has been clear that there are consequences to putting your head on the wrestling mat. And so Jesus turns to this man and says, why is your head on the wrestling mat? I told you what would happen if you spent your lifetime sinning and look at you now. Right? Watch. Marvel. (laughs) Just marvel with me. Look at what your king actually says. Look at what your Jesus actually says to the criminal in verses 42 through 43. The criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Grace. How's that just? I'll tell you why it's just. It's just because Jesus does not choose between justice or grace. Jesus has never chosen between justice or grace because Jesus never chooses between whether or not to act like Jesus or to not act like Jesus. Jesus is not 50% justice and 50% gracious. Jesus is not 75% mercy, but 25% just. Christians have historically confessed the doctrine of the simplicity of God, which I highly recommend you to study. Just take 15 minutes this week, go home, Google the simplicity of God and wear a helmet because it's gonna blow your mind. The way that theologians talk about the character of God, the way the Bible talks about the character of God is beautiful. When we talk about the simplicity of God, we don't mean that, oh, God's really easy to understand because he's simple. That's not what the doctrine means. Theologically and technically, the doctrine of the simplicity of God means that God is simple in that he's not composed of parts. God does not have parts. So God is not part gracious, but part just. And like part wrathful, but like part love. Instead, the simplicity of God says, we reject that God has any parts at all. You can't take a knife and cut off the just part of Jesus and just have the gracious Jesus left over. Likewise, you can't take a knife and just cut off the just piece or the the gracious piece of Jesus and just have a just piece of Jesus left over. Instead, because God has no parts and Jesus has no parts, whatever Jesus is, he is that perfectly without the expense of everything else, without contradicting everything else that he is. That will blow your mind if you spend 10 seconds thinking about that. And what that means with grace and justice is that means that Jesus has never demonstrated justice at the expense of grace, and he has never demonstrated grace at the expense of justice. It means that when he demonstrates grace, he's just because he's absorbed the cost. 
And yet when he demonstrates justice, he does so graciously because of those who have been wounded by sin and have been mishandled by people. And so his justice is gracious and his grace is just. So Jesus has never picked between justice or grace, this or that, because there are no ors in Jesus. And that means that Jesus is perfectly capable of suffering the wrath of God and paying for the justice of God while simultaneously capable of lavishing grace upon the sinner. And so Jesus has the power to look at a criminal who lived a lifetime of sin and declare him sinless with one sentence. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. And this means... And I don't know how to tell you this without having you do backflips in your chair. This means that when God declares you forgiven, you are sinless and the cosmos are just. Grace or justice? No, 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 brother. No, sister. Grace and justice. Because grace and justice meet in the person of Jesus and grace and justice kiss on the cross perfectly. So, here we are, one more week of Advent until Christmas. So let me just end by, let me just end by reminding us of our king of diverse excellencies and how perfect he is, guys. This is the time in the Advent series, in the Advent sermon, when I remind you, he's coming back. And the one that's coming back to us, guys, the one that we are waiting for is perfectly just and he is perfectly gracious. And so I promise you that when Jesus comes back, there will be justice. All of the sins that have been committed against you, all the sins that have destroyed you, all the sins that have bent you out of shape, all the sins that have humiliated you, all the sins that have been committed against you that have kept you up at night, all of the sins that had chipped you and broken you and hurt you, against all these things, there will be perfect justice. When the just one returns, he will judge the earth. And those who have been sinned against will rise up in judgment and glory against those who have sinned against them. The poor will rise up against their debtors. The unborn will rise up in beauty against their accusers. Those who were enslaved will rise up against their enslavers. The sexually mistreated will rise up against their predators. The new creation will rise up against those who have pillaged and destroyed the earth. The religiously abused will rise up against the churches who have committed such abuse. And there will be justice. And it will be perfect. And it will be beautiful. And it will be glorious. And yet... When he returns, he will also douse the cosmos with a grace that you have never, ever sinned, ever, ever in your entire life. Grace upon grace upon grace. If you trust Jesus with faith, every act of sin you've committed will be utterly forgiven. Every injustice that you've participated in will be totally atoned for. Every act of unbelief you've committed will be forgotten and there will be nothing for you besides grace 
grace, grace, because Jesus so fully paid for the sins of those who believe in him and so fully satisfied the justice of God that the only possibility left for you is the warm embrace of love. And so friends, Jesus is not in the corner right now, up in heaven, stomping his feet at you saying, why is your head on the mat? Justice has been accomplished on the cross. And your heavenly coach right now has his arm around you. And he's reminding you through his gospel that it's not about the wins and losses. You are loved unconditionally and perfectly by him. So really, all that leaves us with, when we look at the diverse excellencies of King Jesus, and when we spend these weeks waiting in Advent for the return of Jesus, and we look forward to Christmas, really all that's left over is for us, to tear it up for Jesus this Christmas season. So tear it up for King Jesus this Christmas season. Husbands and fathers, be the lead rejoicers in your family this Christmas season. You are not too cool to be super jolly for your family this season. Wear the sweaters, watch the Christmas movies, bake the cookies, drink the eggnog, Sing the carols, sing loudly and sing out of tune. Labor for strong family traditions that build joyful families. Don't you dare let the unbelieving world outrejoice you. We can be the city's most joyful men, amen? Mothers and wives, be filled with extravagant peace this Christmas season. Don't be filled with unnecessary stress and anxiety. The Lord of glory doesn't care if you don't get the perfect present for the kids. The Lord of glory doesn't care if your house doesn't look like it's to the nines. The Lord of glory doesn't care if you burn the Christmas meal. Be filled with peace and rejoice over your kids. Rejoice over your husband. Rejoice over your friends and be the city's most joyful women. And singles, give yourself to serving your family and friends well this Christmas season. You just have no idea how much it means when you laugh at your dad's jokes. You can do it. I know he's told them a lot, but gosh darn it, they still matter to him. Laugh at the jokes. Write a note of encouragement. Sing with your family. Put your hand on their shoulders and pray for them. Your presence during this Christmas season as a single means so much to your family and friends around you. And you've been filled with the fullness of God to give your guts out this Christmas season. So let's march forward into the Christmas season, whether we're looking forward to it or whether we're stressed out about it. And let's be the city's most jolly people. Amen? He's coming back. And this rhyme to explain in due time. It's all I know. Time is a valuable thing. Watch it by, by as the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The life takes away. It's so unreal. Chick, 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 chick. One thing.